And so, God, we come into your presence one more time as a people, individuals collected together as your body, to worship you and praise you, to learn from your word, to celebrate and re-belong during the Lord's table, and to be sent back out into the world. May we embrace you. May we hear your word and be attentive. And may you speak to each person here and gather them in. And it is in the name of Jesus that we worship. And we all said, Amen. Well, have a seat, everyone. Uh, Just so you know, we are in around Lakeland. We're in the Reformed tradition, you know, the Reformation from the last 500 years. And that would mean that typically in a Reformed church service, a Protestant service, it's focused heavily on worship, as we were just doing, usually in singing and in the prayers and the other type of liturgy. And it's also focused in a lot on the Word and on the uh, explication and preaching of the Scriptures. And then, of course, uh, with the Lord's table, the communion, uh, the Eucharist, the sacrament. And so, just so you know, uh, so if you grew up Eastern Orthodox or Catholic, and you're like, hey man, where's the church service? And you're like, well, that's because it's a Reformed church, and this is what it tends to look like. Okay, so just uh, always try to remind everybody of where we're at. So, uh, yeah, it's Labor Day weekend, yeah, and everybody kind of like chilling and resting and not laboring. Sure you are. So you got all those chores done at home? So, um, so I wanted to present a theology of work. I've done this before. Um, I like doing it, and I think it's very, very important these days because there's way too much attraction to easy money, that, and there's some really serious, um, what would you call it, bad teaching or wrong belief in, within Christianity that somehow work is wrong. Uh, and so let's dig into it here. Here's the theology of work. If you have your Bible with you or if you look it up on your phone and you want to read it for yourself, that might be helpful for you because that way you can dwell on the Scripture. And this first Scripture uh, jumps right in at Genesis chapter 3, the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. And we pick it up in the middle of a verse. And uh, if you've been around the church or the Bible for any length of time, you'll recognize it. So here it is. God's talking to Adam and Eve. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, right off the bat, what we want to begin with is a correction to a common belief that work is a curse from God. Right off the bat, it, we want to say it's God's fault for making us work in the first place. And they want to ask God, hey, why do we have to even work? Why can't, why can't we just all continue this whole kind of garden thing? You know, like just one long seven-day-a-week vacation. Every day is a day of rest. And you give us food and shelter and warmth and a vacation condo in the islands and a snow vacation when it gets too hot. Yeah? And... Um, how come, that's, how come that's not our situation? Are we being punished with work? You know? Doesn't Genesis say that Adam and Eve sinned so they were cursed with work? 
Not so. The very first line of this passage in Genesis 3 makes it quite clear. It is not work. Work is not the curse. What is cursed is the ground. The ground is cursed, and now work becomes difficult. But work we must because we are designed to work. Work is part of our, it's not even a gift. It is who we are in our soul's makeup and what we are. We work because God works. So the book of Genesis never says that work is punishment. Notice it is not work that is cursed, but rather the ground. And labor becomes more difficult because of sin and the fall. And to work then is to be human. So our very first point, we work because we are made in the image of God. We work because we're made in the image of God. The imago dei, the image of God. We must all learn this. Part of being image bearers of God is that we work. We are designed to work. We are designed to produce. We create. We can't help it. You're going to make stuff, build stuff, get a roll of duct tape, and go crazy. That's just what you're going to do. You cannot help this sort of thing. You can all relate to me because here on this Labor Day weekend, I'll guarantee you that the majority of the people in the room are saying like, yeah, great, I got a three-day weekend. I can get stuff done. Or at least you feel guilty because you haven't got stuff done, which is the other part of the fall. So, uh, yeah, some people are like, I don't feel guilty about that at all. So, um, so we work because we're made in the image of God. God loves to work. Sure enough, right there, you know, that's why we call him the creator. Six day, God creates, God works. On the seventh day, God rests. You and I have a deep God-given foundation in our soul that makes us crave meaningful work. Like God, Adam and Eve were already working. Adam and Eve, they had that really cool job, right? They were supposed to tend the garden. I don't know if it's a flower garden, vegetable, fruits, whatever's going on in there. I don't know if they're picking okra or what. I, I don't know what's growing there. It's in the Middle East. It doesn't even have a wall around it. The garden just goes on, you know. It's a metaphor in some respects, you know. You kind of get the idea. So, but nonetheless, they're supposed to be working the garden, right? And then they have the other cool job. At least Adam had this thing. I guess Eve's jumping in on this one too. Get to name the animals. Naming all the animals, everything you see. Okay, you're going to be a squirrel, and you should not be in my garden. And uh, you're a rabbit, and you might taste good. No, I mean, I don't know what they're saying, but they're naming all this stuff. And then, you know, sometimes after so many animals, you kind of start running out of names. And you get down to stuff like, okay, you with the long nose, you eat ants. You're an ant eater. Okay. But other times, they were tremendously creative. Like, you look like sort of an ape monkey thing, but you're kind of orangey looking. And I'm going to come up with an English word that hasn't been invented yet, and it's called orangutan. Huh? Did I just make that up? I sure did. Yeah, I don't know, orangutan. You know, now my daughter, being made in the image of God, and she went off to college so I can talk about her now, and, um, and uh, she had that anteater thing going. She very, very brilliant, and, uh, but not real creative when she was a little kid on naming her dolls and stuff. So, like, her little pink doll name was Pink Doll. Um, and, and the little dog she had was Dog Dog. Just kind of got stuck on the, that's about as far as she got. The little doll, because she couldn't quite pronounce her words right, that didn't, had a face but no nose, poor doll, she named it Noni. I thought, okay, we're getting somewhere. It's getting a little creative, kind of toward the orangutan side as opposed to the anteater side of things, you know. So anyway, 
humans create, and Adam and Eve had this cool job of naming animals, and wasn't that fun. Okay, so we have this God-given foundation deep in our soul, and um, we like to create stuff. And the little humans will do this all day long, and we all know this, and that's why Legos has made a fortune off this whole we are designed to work. They can just snap things together all day long. And I need to give a, a word to that divine video game of all games that is basically built on chopping little one-meter cube blocks with one arm. Yes, you guessed it, Minecraft. So my son said, Dad, you need a new game. And I said, no, I don't. I just do Minecraft. That's all I do. So, all right, because it's all about building. And I'm made in the image of God to do Minecraft. That's kind of a stretch. So anyway, that's just kind of the way the whole thing works. Uh, So, brothers and sisters, fellow humans, let us embrace our identity as creators and workers. That work makes us not only 100% human, but turns our gaze upon the creator in the image of God. Like children imitating their moms and dads, cooking, playing with their play school kitchen set, pots and pans, We, too, work like our Creator. But for each of us, it is not just any work. And so this brings us to our second point in the theology of work. Each of us are unique in our calling and our station in life. You are uniquely gifted by God to express yourself in work. You have a unique calling. Some are called to count numbers on a spreadsheet Some are called to count numbers on a tape measure. Some are called to help the helpless like home health workers and emergency room technicians. Others organize great teams of people and produce wonderful works. This summer, I listened to a couple of biographies, uh, books on audio, uh, about Henry Ford. I just got all worked up this summer about car restoration. And so I thought, Henry Ford, I've heard things about him by the way Henry Ford was very weird but brilliant like weird and brilliant why does those two things always go together Um, so Henry Ford uh, his unique thing according to the people around him is that he could look at any mechanical device a sewing machine a carburetor a pump a steam engine and he in his brain could within two or three minutes figure out exactly how it's designed how it's worked pick out the flaws and redesign it in his head and make it work better every time. He never built a thing, the guys around him said. He never actually built very much, but he could understand how everything worked mechanically. I just think that's fascinating, you know. So that was sort of something that he had a gift at doing, all right? Uh, Very, very brilliant, right? So Other people have all sorts of other things. People can design homes. Other people can build them, you know, and you are gifted to do something unique in the kingdom of God. And I'm talking just purely in what we might call secular time. In other words, in your day in and day out work. Now, within the church and using the church as a model, the church also expressly in the New Testament says that each one has a gift and a calling within the body of Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, really the entire chapter of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, talks about using the metaphor of the body of Christ, the church, that is, the kingdom of God, as a human body. And he says, 
The whole body is not an eye. The whole body is not a hand. The whole body is not an ear or whatever. It, it all must work together. Everyone has their function because we all need each other. Everyone does their unique calling and their gift to make one complete functioning body. So therefore, the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. We all need each other. This is what makes the church cool and unique. Now, sometimes people get misplaced in the body and they end up doing something that they're not gifted at and it turns out horrible. And I'm getting rather autobiographical at this point because when I was young and single and 25 years old, in a church, and I'm, let's just get this perspective here. I'm the last kid of five, right? So I never saw a diaper, but I got put in the toddler room at 25 years old, single. Did I mention I was single and 25 and young and never seen a diaper? The moms are out there going like, they're wincing, like, stay away from my child. So, and, and yes, I agree with you. And But somehow I was nearby and I got grabbed and dragged into the toddler room, you know, and I swore at that moment, I will never change a dirty diaper. I don't know what that is and I won't do it until I have my own kids and then maybe only after a couple of days. I don't care, but I'm not going to do that. And so, um, so since I was in there, then I got dubbed young guy who does toddler room. I'm like, no, as I sunk down to like a year stuck in the toddler room, like every Sunday. And I'm like, is anybody ever going to ask me whether I like doing this? I felt kind of guilty, you know, the whole guilt thing, church. And so finally, though, there was an opportunity in the band because I played guitar. I'm going to play guitar. I, sorry, toddler room. I'm in the band now. And I got out of the toddler room and started doing something I was uniquely gifted at which was playing guitar. But there were other people uniquely gifted, but it didn't matter because I was going to find any reason to stay out of the toddler room. So if the band needed me to look at chords and wind them up, I would do that or watch the lights flash on the board. I would do that, sharpen guitar picks, sort out the brown M&Ms from the colored ones. Whatever the band needed, I'm there, man, as long as I didn't ever have to go back to the toddler room. Uniquely gifted for the band and not changing diapers. Now, other people are uniquely gifted to love those little kids and do that sort of thing, and more power to you, and may the grace of the Lord be upon you. Go change my kids' diapers when they were little. Yeah, I'm all for you guys. Go do that. And if you can't sing, then please don't join the band. Even if, matter of fact, don't even trust yourself on that one. Listen to everybody around you whether or not you can sing. And other people around you, tell them the truth, okay? Are we all good here? Is this good? Okay, I'm good. So this body metaphor uh, in the church holds, okay? So plug yourself into God's wisdom both during the week and at church in the church body. And if you have skills and talents and callings and so forth, then do that in the church. Now, I have noticed this, and I'll just make this little side note. I have noticed that oftentimes... If someone is, say, an electrician or a plumber, and they do that all week long, and then they get to church, and everybody says, hey, you're a plumber or electrician, so we got plumbing and electricity you need to do. And they're like, yeah, I'm pretty sick of doing that all week long, so I don't want to do it when I come to church. Like, okay, cool, we'll let you, like, do something different. You know, you can be a greeter or whatever. Or, you know, and then the opposite works, too. Like, for people who are desk jockeys, 
and they sit there and they type on a computer all day long and they're like, I need to do something with my hands. So I'm going to do plumbing. I may not know what I'm doing, but I don't care. I just need to do something at church with my hands. Like, okay, cool. We got some gum on the stairs out there. and We'll give you a putty knife and you can go out there and just praise God. So we got jobs for you around here. So uh, sometimes it just works out that way and that's okay. It's all fine. Sometimes you need to get out of the mundane week and do something different at church and that's cool. Maybe even change a diaper. Third point on our theology of work, our, we work because our God-given desire to create and produce builds a flourishing society. It's not just about us and our unique gift, it's about others. It is about others. If building a flourishing society isn't enough for you, then, then earnest labor also produces money, and money makes a flourishing society, Okay. A flourishing society means there are buyers and sellers who mutually benefit from each other. They create a marketplace and a balanced economy, if it all works out right. So please pay attention to this unique Christian distinction, because I'm going to make a fine distinction here about economics, all right? And this is a theological point. A flourishing society, according to Christianity, is not one, unlike secular mentality, Society is not measured by those at the top in Christianity. It is not measured by who is a celebrity, who makes billions of dollars or millions of dollars or business people who do that or real estate people. We do not measure the world and economics and the wealth of a nation based upon who is doing the best. Within Christianity, it is measured by how well those at the bottom are doing. This is a big distinction, and oftentimes throughout the centuries has been part of controversy with the church versus the state. Nonetheless, Christianity advocates all the time we measure our success by how well off the poor are doing and whether or not everyone has bread. A very strong distinction that we must keep clear if we want to have a good, solid theology of work. We measure how well we're doing by the least of us. This comes directly then from a scripture that comes from Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25, verses 37 through 40. Jesus is teaching, and we jump, jump in on the middle of this, and this is what Jesus taught. Oh, and by the way, I know it's up on the screen here. Jesus, this scripture is often applied to individuals, but Jesus is talking about the nations, entire people, Okay? It makes it much more forceful if you think about this as far as nations. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it when we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Do not miss the point, everyone. When you serve and the poor, the least of these, it is serving the same as Jesus Christ. There is no getting around it. The best we can do is when it's best for all. Puritan preacher Samuel Hiron says this several hundred years ago. He that hath not honest 
business about which ordinarily to be employed, no settled course to which he may betake himself, cannot please God. The Puritans were convinced you can build a solid, flourishing, dependable social order if each person works in their settled course. America, in its unique experiment, which the Puritan voice was quite strong, had this idea that the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker all have their settled course, and everyone works diligently, and it builds a nation. I bet you, down in your American DNA, you say, yeah, yeah, that's right, I knew that, you know. Uh, Hiram, Samuel Hiram goes on. He continues, he says, These people are industrious, disciplined, do useful work, and above all can be relied on. They are not tempted to mischief because idleness is the principal breeding ground of all sorts of evil. An idle man's brain becometh quickly the shop of the devil. So, hey, Ben Franklin, I think he ripped it off from Samuel Hiram, you know, the idle hands of the devil's workshop. This is where he got that. You know, Ben Franklin was in, uh, didn't believe in God. He was a theist at best. Um, but uh, he loved all the Christian teaching. Very intriguing. So, um, so he, he took that and didn't even actually really want to accept the fact of where it came from, that this is in the economy of God, how life works. Work hard, right? In, in light of, uh, just to apply this to our own context, in light of our terrible violent year so far in Kansas City, and it's been a terrible year of murders outpacing last year's rate and looking to go even worse, even this morning's paper, there were more murders. And particularly when, it's, when people, uh, innocent bystanders and children are being killed, uh, and murdered. It is my personal opinion, and not just mine, but my, it's my personal opinion that the most powerful way to curb violence is to create steady jobs and paychecks, especially for young men. If you wish to do something about violence in Kansas City, you create jobs and steady paychecks. It is the most effective way to curb violence. Short-term as well as long-term. And so this, I lay in the lap of business owners and employers. This one falls on you. You are charged to create jobs and paychecks for the unskilled, and you will save lives, and you will do something about the condition of our city. It's that simple. You can throw a dozen yeah buts at me immediately and say, yeah, but I don't know, you know, we don't need anybody or whatever it is, or they don't have skills, or what if they rip something off, you know, all this sort of thing. But jobs create dads. Dads make for stable homes. And stable homes curb violence. Your average inner city kid moves every six months. Men are not present in the home. The statistics are out there. But a job and a paycheck make everyone, you know, lie down in peace. Speaking of flourishing, 
I teach this theology of work precisely because I hear far too many young men and women being attracted to the allure of easy money. Easy money is a, uh, a, a quick way to mess up your image of God. You were designed to work. So here's God's wisdom about those who want the easy way out. And we go to Proverbs here, which Proverbs is replete with this idea of work hard. Okay, And it's actually kind of fun, uh, at least in my sort of brain. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Sluggard. It's such a great word. Just sluggard. You just want to find a use it Tuesday morning when you go to the office. Work it into a conversation at the coffee pot. So, sluggard. What do you think? You know, anyway, uh, so, I mean, it makes you think of slugs, right? I mean, the etymology's got to be there somewhere real close between sluggard and slug. And, I mean, they're slow moving. They're, they're weird they have no shell. What's their point? They, they eat my cilantro in the garden. You know, um, I mean, even animal rights people don't care for them. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker next to Save the Wells that says Save the Slugs? No. Nobody cares about slugs, you know. And so, a sluggard, you don't want to be a sluggard. You want to work hard, not just go sliming along, waiting for the big salt shaker. That's not what it's all about. <laughs> You know, but Proverbs goes on. When will you get up, you sluggard, from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like a robber. Huh? Yeah, sluggards. Now, if your spouse knows the Bible really well, like my spouse does, and you know those Saturday mornings when they've been working hard all week and they just want to sleep in and you want to torment them like I used to do and you just lean over and you say, a little sleep, a little slumber, sluggard. <laughs> and then you get elbowed and the pillow goes over your, their head or your head. Uh, you know, because nobody wants to be a sluggard, a proverbial sluggard. As a matter of fact, the scripture keeps going to 19, just, Proverbs just keeps on going. Chapter 19, verse 24, here's a good one. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. This dude can't even get his hand out of the bowl of Cheetos to get it to his face, man. That's how sluggard he is. Can't even get that done. That's lazy. God is against easy money. It's contrary to our God-given design. Easy money decouples effort from, com- from compensation. It decouples effort from compensation. Effort and compensation go together. Remember this. You do not work for the man. You work for God. God is your boss. God is the one you are accountable to. Many years ago, when my college friends and I were working our way through college, we started a house painting business in my sophomore year. And uh, very first day in the job, I got there and my friend was already there and he handed me a quart can of black oil enamel paint and said, do the wrought iron with a rag in my hand. You know, I had a black hand for, I don't know, weeks, I think. But we stood there and we said to each other, and we were both Christian brothers, and we said, all right, here's the way this is going to go. Work heartily as though for the Lord and not for man. Colossians 3.23, we said, that's right. We're going to work heartily as though God is our boss and nobody else. And I put the enamel on. 
And we did that for five years. Working hard for God, not for anybody else. That's how we viewed it. Do your work heartily as though for the Lord and not for people. Which brings us to this final point on a theology of worship, of, of work. We work because we serve an audience of one. You only serve an audience of one. Once again, we turn to the old Puritan thought of an audience of one. This idea of work as worship of an audience of one. Not our boss, not our paycheck, not even our family, but whatever we do, whatever we're busy at, whatever we put our hand to, it is for an audience of one. Who are you working for these days? What's your self-image? How do you measure yourself? What do you think this Tuesday morning? What is your purpose in life? It is all about the audience of one. That is the only praise that you need is that person, God. Never settle down uh, to accepting something else. God says to us, just work as though you're working for me. I'll be your boss. Work for me. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. I am not a cruel taskmaster. I will not lay anything too difficult on you that you cannot handle. You may think it's pushing the edge of the envelope, and it may, but I am there with you, and I am watching, and I am applauding, and you are imitating me. Let us do this together. And that's how we go about our day. My brother used to say, uh, work is a four-lettered word. Didn't go to church. He never settled down to a steady job his whole life. He's in a home now. He did his own thing. He never married. He never had kids. Never owned anything but an old, rusty, broken down, wired together Ford Bronco. His sole possession. And I suppose he was happy in the life that he chose. But I've often wondered, watching his life, I've thought, what has he contributed to the world? A flourishing society. An audience of one. What has he brought other than his own dream? And in my estimation, it's a failure of a theology of work to think that work is a four-lettered word. It's all wrong-headed from the beginning. What is your calling? What is your work? Who are you working for? When you awake Tuesday morning, turn your face toward God, get up on time, and go in as though you are working for an audience of one that God is your boss. Delight in what you have been given to do. If it is not your joy, then pray and seek out what is your calling and what is your joy. I tell my son several times, he's probably sick of hearing it, but I say each entrepreneur has gone bankrupt three times before they found their success. Try. Don't be afraid. Do whatever God lays before you and put your hand to it. Don't turn back. Ever. Amen.